Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the third of a four-part series on the Crimean War of 1853. In the first two parts, I describe the build-up to the conflict. And in this part, battle commences. Towards the end of June 1853, the Russian army triggered the Crimean War by crossing the river Prut and occupying the Danubian principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia, a critical buffer zone between the Russian and Ottoman empires. They rapidly advanced to Bucharest, where they set up headquarters. In every town they posted copies of a manifesto in which it was stated that Russia did not want to make territorial gains, was only occupying the principalities as a guarantee for the satisfaction of its religious grievances with the Ottoman government. The British administration was divided in their reaction. The Prime Minister, Lord Aberdeen, refused to see it as an act of war and warned against sending a British fleet to help the Turks. On the other side of the debate, Lord Palmerston, supported by the British press, demanded immediate action for the protection of Turkey, specifically British warships in the Bosporus to put pressure on the Russians to withdraw from the principalities. Negotiations continued slowly to try and work out a peaceful solution, while in the meantime there were heavy fighting between Turks and Russians in the Danubian principalities and Caucasus mountains. The Turks won the first contests of war at the town of Vidin on the river Danube and St Nicholas in the Caucasus. The decisive action of the first phase of the war came in November 1853. The Ottoman sailing fleet was wintering 
in the harbour at Sinop, on the southern coast of the Black Sea, still training the crews that had been hastily assembled since the summer. The Russian fleet moved out of its base in Sevastopol and made the quick sail across the sea. On November 30th, it appeared just outside Sinop Harbour. In the dim light of early morning, with the cold winter rain falling, Admiral Nakimov ordered his ships to open fire. There was little in the way of a real battle. The Russian ships were equipped with exploding shells, and they used them to devastating effect. In only about an hour, the entire Ottoman fleet was sunk, after which the batteries along the coast were destroyed and the town set on fire. More than 3,000 Ottoman seamen were killed in the encounter. The attack at Sinop transformed public opinion in Great Britain. On the 4th of December, Palmerston resigned from the cabinet and added his own voice to the chorus of demands for military action, his aim being to challenge Lord Aberdeen from outside government by rallying public opinion behind his own campaign for more aggressive foreign policy. Palmerston maintained that the action at Sinop was an indirect attack upon the Western powers, who had sent their warships into the Bosporus as a warning to Russia. The Foreign Secretary, the Earl of Clarendon, was persuaded. He urged the Prime Minister to use the incident at Sinop as the moral argument to take strong measures against Russia and to reject peace initiatives, which the Austrians were trying to organise. On the 22nd of December, it was agreed that a combined Anglo-French fleet would be sent to protect Turkish shipping in the Black Sea, and two days later, Palmerston returned to the cabinet, the undisputed leader of the war party. The author and historian Orlando Fikes argues that the Crimean War was the first in history to be brought about by the pressure of the press and public opinion. Palmerston understood the need to cultivate the press and to appeal in simple terms to the public, and the issue that gave him the opportunity was the war against Russia. Quote, his foreign policy captured the imagination of the British public as the embodiment of their own national character and popular ideals. He was Protestant and freedom-loving, energetic and adventurous, confident and bold, proudly British and contemptuous of foreigners, particularly those of the Catholic and Orthodox religion, whom Palmerstone associated with the worst excesses of the continent. End quote. In France, too, the press was an active influence on Napoleon's foreign policy. The greatest pressure came from the Catholic provincial press, which had been calling for war since the beginning of the dispute in the Holy Lands. Their calls became ever louder after the news of Sinop. The task of those advocating for war was made easier by the Tsar's intransigence. On the 2nd of February 1854, Russia broke off relations with France, and Nicholas rejected proposals put forward by Napoleon III for a resolution to the situation. On the 27th of March, the British declared war on Russia, and France did the same the next day, more than five months after the Turks had done so. Tsar Nicholas had taken a number of missteps to provoke war, perhaps because of overconfidence. In his 25 years on the throne, he had suffered no major international reverses. 
He believed that France was unlikely to be able to secure an alliance with Britain, and even that Britain might support Russia's attack on the Ottoman Empire. In addition, he thought, in any event, that he could count on the support of Austria, because of their traditional alliance, their joint interest in maintaining stability in the face of the forces of liberalism, and because of the assistance the Russians had rendered Vienna in putting down the Hungarian revolt in 1849. All of these opinions, however, turned out to be mistaken. Nicholas was furious when he realised that the Austrian government would not support him. He felt that the young emperor, Franz Josef, deserved his gratitude. He turned round the portrait of the emperor to the wall and wrote on the back of it with his own hand, Du undankbare, you ungrateful man. Depending on Austrian cooperation, however, had always been unwise, since Vienna had potentially more to lose from the Ottoman Empire's collapse than any of the great powers. The year 1848 had also demonstrated their difficulty controlling their existing territories, let alone trying to expand further. In the long run, collaboration with Russia would have risked turning Austria into Russia's vassal. The fallout between Russia and Austria during the Crimean War would have significant and long-running consequences. In early 1854, the Russians again advanced, crossing the Lower Danube into the Turkish province of Dobruja, and they laid siege to the town of Silistra on the 14th of April with 60,000 troops. The Turkish army put up a strong defence at Silistra and resisted the bombardment of 500 Russian guns. When the Russians learnt that a large combined army of French, British and Turkish troops were on their way to lift the siege, they retreated. The Russian troops became tired and demoralised. There were so many sick and wounded that not all could be taken back by cart, and thousands were abandoned to the Turks. And at the fortress town on Djordjou, on the 7th of July, the Russians lost 3,000 men in the battle of Turkish forces. As soon as the town was cleared of Russian troops, the Turks ransacked the homes and churches of its Christian population, forcing the entire Christian population to flee with the Russian infantry. The capture of the town of Georgia by the Ottomans immediately threatened Bucharest in Wallachia, with capture by the same Ottoman army. So on the 26th of July 1854, Tsar Nicholas I ordered the complete withdrawal of Russian troops from the Danubian principalities. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In June 1854, the Allied Expeditionary Force had landed at Varna, a city on the Black Sea's western coast, but they had made little advance from their base there. They were struck hard by a cholera epidemic, which was then affecting the whole of southeastern Europe. There were also regular occurrences of cholera in London and other British cities at the time. At the time, the linking of the disease with poor sanitation was not understood, and so it spread rapidly in conditions where basic rules of hygiene were ignored. The military's medical services were woefully ill-equipped to deal with the outbreak, so thousands died from the disease. Then came fire at Varna, started probably by arsonists sympathetic to the Russian cause. By the time the fire could be contained, half the town was engulfed in flames, including the Allied Army supply base. It was clear that the soldiers needed to get out of Varna area before they were totally destroyed by cholera and starvation. With the Russians forced to retreat from the Danube, the British and the French could have gone home, claiming victory. It could have been possible to end the war at this point, and for the British and French to use the threat of intervention and make the Russians promise not to invade Turkish soil again. Instead, the Allies decided to continue the war, and to bring the war directly to Russia. Having brought their armies all this way, they wanted to achieve a military goal to justify the efforts they had made. Palmerston and his political allies in London were not prepared to negotiate a peace when the Russian armed forces were intact. They wanted to inflict serious damage on Russia, to destroy her military capability in the Black Sea, not just to protect Turkey, but to end the threat of Russian interests in the Near East. As the British Foreign Secretary, the Earl of Clarendon declared when he explained British war aims to the House of Lords, Britain was going to war, quote, to check and repel the unjust aggression of Russia, end quote. Various options were considered, including mounting an attack against Russia in the Caucasus. Finally, it was decided the best way to strike a decisive blow was to invade Crimea, and specifically the main Russian naval base at Sevastopol. Viewed on the map, Sevastopol looked an easy enough target. It lay at the southwestern end of the Crimean Peninsula, and looked relatively isolated and open to attack from land and sea. The Crimean campaign opened in September 1854, when 360 ships sailed from Varna to Crimea, carrying the Allied troops. Rather than attack directly, they anchored on the 13th of September in the Bay of Yevpatoria, to the north of Sevastopol, 
which was quickly occupied. The Allies advanced on the morning of the 20th of September up to the river Alma, where they engaged the Russian army. The Russians had a good defensive position, but after three hours were driven out with the loss of 6,000 men, compared to the loss of some 3,300 Allied soldiers. The Russian defeat demonstrated they had failed to keep up with the latest military technology. Their traditional musket was shown to be ineffective against an enemy equipped with the latest in firearms, the Minier rifle. Developed by the French army in North Africa, the Minier rifle could fire rapidly with lethal accuracy up to 1,600 metres. The design of their bullets allowed more rapid loading and was an innovation that brought about the widespread use of the rifle as the main battlefield weapon for individual soldiers. The French army had advanced in other ways during their campaign in Algeria. Its score for officers had produced a whole new class of military professionals who were tactically superior and socially far closer to their men than the aristocratic officers of the British army. The senior command of the British army was dominated by old gentlemen, well networked in high society but with little military experience or expertise. The experience they had was from a different age, such as the commander of British forces, the 65-year-old Lord Raglan, who had fought in the Napoleonic Wars, whereas the French had more recent experience fighting in North Africa. Had the British and French pressed south after their victory at the Alma, they might have been able to capture Sevastopol quickly. Instead, they took 18 days to get their guns in place, giving the Russians crucial time to prepare their defences. The commander of the Russian forces in the city was Menshikov, the same individual who had acted as ambassador in Istanbul. Believing the northern approaches to the city too well defended, the Allies decided to attack Sevastopol from the south. The whole army began to march southeast and encircled the city from the south, and the Russians retreated into the city. They brought with them heavy artillery, and bombardment commenced on the 17th of October. The fleet at the same time engaged the shore batteries. The Allies were unable to encircle the city and prevent reinforcements from arriving. This gave the Russians the confidence to make sorties and to attack the besiegers. A large Russian assault on the Allied supply base to the southeast at Balaclava triggered the battle which became, at least in Britain, the most famous incident in the whole war, the Battle of Balaclava of the 25th of October and the charge of the Light Brigade. The British were overstretched and their supply base vulnerable and had built six redoubts, or temporary fortifications, for its protection, which were manned by Turkish troops. The Turks put up stubborn resistance in the first redoubt, losing more than a third of their men before being forced to retreat by the Russian advance. Having taken all the redoubts, the Russian cavalry turned on the kilted infantry of Sir Colin Campbell's 93rd Highlanders, who were defending Balaclava. Campbell formed his men into a line just too deep, placing his trust in the deadly power of the Minier rifles. As four squadrons of the Russian horse approached, he rode the line, calling on his men to stand firm. According to a reporter of the Times newspaper, William Russell, watching from the heights, they looked like a, quote, thin red streak, 
tipped with a line of steel, end quote. Rather than the later misquoted Thin Red Line, which they then became better known as. As the Russian cavalry charged at them, and at a range of about a thousand metres, Campbell gave the order for the first volley. The Russians continued to charge, but after a second volley, began to swerve to the right in some confusion. A third volley, at a much closer range, caught the Russians in the flank, causing them to turn sharply to their left and to ride back to their own army. The initial attack had been repulsed, but the main body of the Russian cavalry, 2,000 hussars, flanked by Cossack outriders, now prepared for their own charge. The infantry were rescued by the British Heavy Brigade, who charged the enemy, slashing wildly at them with their swords. The fighting was brief but intense, the opposing horsemen so tightly packed together that there was no room for swordsmanship. All they could do was hit or cut at anything within their reach, as if they were in a brawl. The Russians lost their nerve first and galloped away, pursued by the British cavalry, until they had to withdraw under fire from the Russian batteries on the surrounding hills. Lord Raglan, overall commander of the British forces, observed the Russians moving artillery from the captured redoubts on the Vorontsov Heights. He sent orders to disrupt the operation to the Light Brigade, a unit with smaller, faster horses than the Heavy Brigade, who were typically directed against enemy troops who were disorganised or retreating. Raglan phrased the order, quote, advance rapidly to the front, follow the enemy and try to prevent the enemy from carrying away the guns, end quote. However, by the time the order reached the brigade's commander, Cardigan, the message had become confused and directed at a different Russian unit than the one intended. Cardigan thought the order was absurd, but rather than asking for clarification, he obeyed what he thought were Raglan's wishes and led a charge straight down the centre of the valley, surrounded by Russian artillery and forces on three sides. The brigade advanced slowly, at first, and then at full charge, all the time fired on by the Russian guns on the heights as well as the battery in front of them. The Allies suffered heavy losses by the time they reached the Russian battery and then became virtually encircled. The Light Brigade, without the support they desperately needed, fought fiercely with sabres in hand-to-hand combat. The survivors battled gallantly through the Russian line behind them in a desperate retreat. Out of more than 600 men who had embarked on the charge, 110 were killed and about 130 were wounded and another 30 or so wounded and captured. The bloody charge and ensuing melee, which had lasted a mere 20 minutes, was over by noon. Lord Raglan had watched from a distance in dismay. He then abandoned attempts to retake the heights and pulled his infantry divisions back to form up defensive positions against further Russian attacks. The Russians claimed a victory because the positions that they had gained severely hindered the Allied siege of Sevastopol. The British, in turn, held the heroic survivors of the charge as a symbol of their army's courage and perseverance, and immortalised by the famous poem of Alfred Lord Tennyson, The Charge of the Light Brigade. In truth, however, the incident had been a debacle, the soldiers put in unnecessary danger by a failure of the military chain of command.
My name is Carl Rylett and you've been listening to a History of Europe Gibatos podcast. You can contact me directly at Carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net or on the Facebook page for the podcast. If you'd like to support the show, then you can do so at patreon.com stroke history europe. Or if you like the History of Europe key battles, then why not give it a great review on iTunes? Today's music was composed by Frédéric Chopin. Prelude number four, and then two mazurkas. I hope you can join me next week for the final part on the Crimean War. Until then, all the best and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.